1: Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thanks so much for joining us today. Today's topic is Logistics Industry Outlook with my friend, John Larkin. How's it go, John Larkin?
0: I'm doing well, Joe, given that I'm a little less than six weeks beyond quintuple bypass surgery. So yeah, I'm very yeah. happy to be here and happy to be alive, to be honest.
1: Whew, I'm glad I'm glad you're alive too. Well, you you weren't on my podcast, and you you uh, you were supposed to be. And I remember you didn't I didn't get a message. Then, like a, I don't know, two weeks ago, you wrote, "Hey, I had this this bypass." I was thinking that's a good excuse. That 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 is that you get a pass for that. So I'm glad you're uh, doing better. I'm glad you're still with us. So, John, please introduce yourself and your company, and where you're at today.
0: Yeah, my name's John Larkin. I'm 66 years old. The beard is new. When I went through the surgery, my kids said, let the beard stay. It makes you look more gentrified, (laughs) more scholarly. So it's still here, although occasionally it does get a little itchy. I've been in the transportation and logistics industry my entire life. Started out as a young man up in upstate New York. Grew up outside of Albany, New York. We still have a summer uh, place up in the Adirondacks. Very nice. Where we spend the summers. It is what we refer to affectionately as God's country up there. And I went to undergraduate school. Wait, where do the, you normally
1: you normally live?
0: Well, we normally are in Dallas, Texas. I'm in Dallas, Texas right now.
1: Yeah. You guys are nice and warm this time of year. Warmer than upstate New York.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that's part of the whole idea. Plus... Given that I travel a fair amount on business, living in Dallas makes it real easy because you can either fly nonstop just about anywhere on Southwest, and if they don't go there nonstop, uh, American goes there nonstop.
1: Very nice, very nice. So you grew up in upstate New York, and as a kid, you play you play sports into academics in the band. what did you do as a kid w- or work a lot well, of jobs? Uh, was
0: was in the band all the way through high school. Uh, played the trumpet. Very nice. Following the footsteps of my uncle, who was quite accomplished, trumpet player, and that was a lot of fun. And then uh, also ran track indoor and outdoor and cross country, which I wouldn't recommend my worst enemy because uh, there's a certain pain element associated with that. And I've often said, no matter what you encounter in life or in the business world, it's not as painful as running a cross country race. No, no, man, I'm
1: I'm too i I was too chunky for that back in the day. I was I was born to be an offensive lineman. If well, hundred years ago, I'm too small for it now. But yeah, that running that that'll knock it out of you. I joke about this all the time. I signed up for some boot camp at my gym, and I was like, I've not worked hard since there was a since there wasn't a coach chasing behind me calling me names. <laughs> so I need I need that, but. You grew up upstate. Where'd you go to school? What'd you study?
0: I went to undergrad at the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont. I studied uh, civil engineering there. There were about 30 of us or so in the civil engineering class of 1977. And I thought that maybe I would become a professor and asked the department chairman where I should go to grad school. And he gave me. I think four recommendations applied to all four got into all four and ended up going uh, to the university of texas in austin which for a kid it was probably a small day, town it then was, <laughs> it was quite a change
1: it was a small town then wasn't it
0: yeah austin was uh i don't know maybe uh third as big as it is now something like that and uh it was a wonderful it was still uh, texas then Educational experience
1: <laughs> austin was still part of texas then right
0: yeah, I think so. I don't think it's quite as uh, left leaning uh, back then as it is now. Right, right.
1: So you studied? Would you? Would you get your degree in over at? Uh, uh, over masters at Texas?
0: in civil engineering, specifically transportation engineering. Ah. And worked with a fellow professor by the name of Mike Walton, who, interestingly, today heads the Texas Technology Task Force. Nice. And, uh, I've actually moderated a panel at one of their meetings and and try to follow their work, but he is still actively engaged, still looks the same, still sounds the same, and <laughs> proves to us all that staying active as you age is is the way to enjoy your later years.
1: yeah, the reason I work for myself is I can't be fired. I, I get pay cuts every once in a while i uh, there's no there's no way around that, but I won't fire me. <laughs> so um, did you go to work after that or, or what was your next step?
0: Well, after getting my master's, I, I went to uh, work for an engineering firm called Day and Zimmerman up in Buffalo, New York. And the project there was to build a light rail system, which was to be 50 or 60 miles long. And we were working on the initial six mile spine that ran right up Main Street from what is was known as the odd, which is where the Sabres played. Yep up to the south campus of uh, the university, partly underground, partly on the surface. And eventually they were gonna use abandoned railroad rights-of-way, of of which there are a lot in Buffalo, to expand it out into a lower cost per mile system. But but the expansion never happened as transit fell out of favor and there wasn't funding for the expansion.
1: So where'd you go from there?
0: Well, went to Philadelphia, worked on the Penn Central valuation case, also with Dan Zimmerman and another project down in Venezuela, which involved building a rail system from the port of La Guayra up to Caracas. Damn. And uh, the average grade of that rail system was like 7%, which is a very steep grade for a railroad. So uh, I spent a fair amount of time down there. Another... Transformational experience, and then I decided that maybe at some point I should figure out what a balance sheet and an income statement are. Uh-huh. So I applied to business school and got into a pretty good one, and 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 decided to matriculate there.
1: Wait, a see, you went to Harvard, right?
0: Yes, I went. To, I, I got in somehow to uh, Harvard Business School, where everyone admitted feels like an admissions mistake. <laughs>
1: Right. I heard Conan O'Brien say this. Uh, he went to Harvard and I heard him say, he goes, I almost wish I didn't go there. He said, because he goes, what people, how people look at me, like I'm somehow, you know, really, really smart. He goes, I was just really a, a ridiculously hard studier. And uh, and he said, um, it's not guaranteed, but I will say this. I always know people. I, I look at your LinkedIn so I can tell where everyone went. Everyone probably had, I think, six people I've known on my podcast, went to Harvard, most of them, the MBA program, they never say it. If I went to Harvard, I would have it tattooed on my face. I'm not into face tattoos, but I would for for Harvard. But uh, Anyway, so where'd you go after that, after you understood how spreadsheets worked?
0: Yeah, I actually never figured out how to make a spreadsheet work. (laughs) That was sort of the pre-spreadsheet era in 1982, 83 and 84. Got a summer job between the first and second year at BCG, Boston Consulting Group, and we worked on a project for a company called IU International, which later became Landstar. Oh, wow. One of the all-time great transportation stocks, and that was was very fun and uh, entertaining and educational. And then I decided that I didn't want to be in investment banking or consulting, which is where most people were going. I wanted to work for a real company. So I got a job with uh, CSX, uh, more railroads, the the seaboard system railroad in Jacksonville, Florida in 1984. Uh, And that was prior to the Chessy seaboard combination, which created CSX. Yep. And we had, my wife and I had gotten married between first and second year of business school. And we bought our first house down there and CSX was hiring about 10 MBAs a year. I don't think any of which came in during that time are are still with the company, but it was it was really interesting because the company was struggling with deregulation and what do we do to compete in a freely competitive world? And uh, a lot of the the people there had grown up in the regulated era, and it was it was a tough transition for them.
1: Interesting. So, where'd you where'd you head after that? Well, I know you didn't uh, end up there.
0: We, <laughs> CSX decided that it didn't make sense to have the seaboard and the chassis as separate railroads. Mm -hmm. So they combined them into one giant railroad, but then whacked it up into three operating units, transportation, distribution services, and equipment. And I went with distribution services, which was run by a fellow named Dick Sanborn. And the headquarters of that was to be in Baltimore. So we moved to Baltimore. And the thought was that we should become a multimodal... Logistics company. Okay. Way ahead of its time in, in terms of a strategic thought. So, when uh, you say
1: multimodal, I just want to make sure I understood that. That that means we, we're we using the rail, and then I'm cr- craning stuff off of rails, putting it onto trucks. I'm also putting stuff onto ships with the cranes, right? As containers.
0: Yeah. Right around then, CSX actually bought SeaLand, which was the
1: one of the innovators uh, of the, in the containerized freight, company. right?
0: that Malcolm McLean founded, he invented containerization. So that gave us the global reach. We had the big Eastern railroad, and we wanted to get into distribution, warehousing, trucking, et cetera. So I struck up a conversation with a fellow named Bill Legg in in Baltimore, who was sort of the, the father of trucking investment banking. A wonderful guy, very gentrified fellow Navy. I think he went through ROTC at Trinity College and was in the Navy during the Vietnam War. But just a wonderful guy who was very well connected in the trucking industry. And he was my mentor and taught me. Was he you know, like Mason? 80% of what I know. No, this was uh, Alex Brown and Sons.
1: Oh, which is, isn't is that one of the, the firms that brought a lot of the financial... Uh or I should say, brought a lot of these companies public over time?
0: Yes, Alex Brown brought most of the trucking companies public, uh, a few before I arrived there. The first one was Viking Freight System, which is now part of FedEx Freight.
1: Man, um, oh man, <laughs> we are on the ground floor uh, on a lot of cool
0: stuff. Public, uh, J.B. Hunt and Werner Enterprises. And uh, after I joined, we did uh, Swift, Knight, Old Dominion, Hub Group, CH Robinson. Wow. And had the good fortune to work very closely with all those management teams, some of whom I'm still pretty close to, uh, those that are you know, still alive, not all of them are still alive. And back in those days, Wall Street was set up so that research could be very heavily involved in the process of taking a company public. Yep. Working side by side with the bankers, that's no no longer allowed. So it was really a demanding, you know, flew around the country literally every week, you know, worked my tail off and, you know, learned a lot and and met a lot of tremendous people who are, you know, sort of the backbone of this industry.
1: Yep. And if I could say this, and maybe I'll just ask you a question. So you mentioned the containerized freight, So... What was it? Malcolm McLean, right? He's the one who came up with the idea, not the only one, but popularized uh, containerized freight, which, by the way, we would not have the world trade we have today without that containerized freight. I did a podcast not so long ago on the box that changed the world. And that is the box that changed the world. And I think we really, it really got its legs in Vietnam we are moving a ton of stuff back and forth. And the cost of loading and unloading a boat was so significant back then, and unloading and loading boxcars was so significant. My dad always used to tell me, he used to work at the railroad, and he said as a kid, and he said, the worst job on earth. And we had tons of people loading containers, loading boats, loading boxcars, and all of a sudden that containerized freight means I can take it off the boat on a crane, put it into a, onto a, a truck, put it on derail, change the world. And so you were right. And I know you were, you worked at a company that did it, but then you were on the ground floor of all these Titans that are now all publicly traded. And we take that for granted, but it wasn't the way it always was. So you're, this industry is maturing and it, you definitely part of that.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, it was, I gotta tell you, it was, it was uh, exhilarating. It was great fun. And it was an honor to, to have a chance to work closely with people like uh, J.B. Hunt or Phil Yeager Sr., or Sid Verdorn at C.H. Robinson. Those were true visionaries who figured out how to make this industry what it is today after deregulation.
1: Yep. So how long were you at Alex Brown for?
0: I want to say 13 years.
1: Nice. Then where?
0: Well, I was told by the people in compliance that I walked and talked and spoke like an investment banker, and therefore, maybe for regulatory purposes, I should be in banking and not in research. So I moved to banking, and one of the very first assignments that came across the transom was a roll up for railroad contractors. And so, what you mean
1: that's we mean an industry roll up where, where a bigger player is just buying up a whole bunch of the other players
0: or a bunch of small carriers small players would all simultaneously merge at the time of the ipo yep it was called a, a poof ipo and there were there was a, a group down in houston called Notro capital which was behind most of them yep Co- coach usa was one we worked on at alex brown that was quite famous there was Palex. there was there were a number of others and we decided to go ahead with this uh, roll up of railroad contractors, which we call the Railworks Corporation. Uh, I was asked to become the CEO of the company by the founding uh, presidents and, and went home and, and talked to my wife and said, how many times are you going to be asked to be a CEO? You know, maybe once in your life if you're lucky. So let's, let's roll the dice and do this. So became the uh, CEO of Railworks Corporation. We did the 13 deals at the time of the IPO. 13 companies came together. Wow. We then proceeded to do another 20 or so acquisitions, and then uh, the Y2K recession hit. The Y2K recession hit. Bill Clinton ran into Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> Long-term capital management blew up, and, and uh, the spike in the NASDAQ went away very quickly. The market melted down and that, that put a lot of pressure on, on Railworks, which, which did have a, a fair amount of debt. So ultimately, uh, I was asked by what I thought was a great board to, to, to move aside. And it was probably probably a good move for me. And I reconstituted my sort of banking career on the platform of Leg Mason, given that All four of our kids were ensconced in school in Baltimore, didn't want to move to New York, didn't want to move to Washington, sort of like Baltimore at the time, and uh, recreated the Alex Brown research franchise on the Lake Mason platform, which then became the primary element of Stiefel Nicholas's institutional practice. Right.
1: Which is to, to this day, they put out some of the more important uh, research that I don't always get to see. But I have seen, I know of it. I just don't see it. And, and they have some pretty important conferences. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, the guys that are running the group now, Bruce Chan is doing a nice job. And I always thought highly of Bruce. You know, he kind of carried on in our footsteps when I left. And then when Dave Ross left to go to Roadrunner.
1: Yeah, Dave Ross was on my podcast and he spoke about the LTL industry and I will put the link to, in the show notes. We're getting a little bit of history here with John. We got th- that from uh, Mr. Ross also. So again, it's my feeling is we're going to see a ton of change. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. but the change you've already seen has been significant. and I will th- you know throw out here that you know we see certain industries that are more mature than others. Is it your feeling that this industry is still kind of mature, still maturing or it's, it's closer to the middle than it is to the end? Am I correct to say that?
0: Yeah, I would say that describing it as being closer to the middle than the end is a good way to describe it. Uh, there's still a lot of consolidation to take place, particularly in the fragmented sector, sectors like the truckload sector. And there's still a huge amount of technology yeah. You know, five or six years ago, there wasn't much technology.
1: Right. And so what about the freight brokerage? They seemed like we had fewer freight brokers for a while. And then all of a sudden there was a lot of freight brokers.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think C.H. Robinson is kind of the gold standard of uh, freight brokers. They've been around for over 100 years, started uh, trading produce, you know, carrots and lettuce and so forth but then figured out they could make more money transporting the carrots and lettuce than they could on the carrots and lettuce. And, and, you know, a lot of really entrepreneurial people left C.H. Robinson started their own brokerages. Yep. A good example of that would be somebody like Alan Lund, who's unfortunately no longer with us, but he left Robinson, started his own company, which is now very large uh, in its own right.
1: Which one's that? Uh,
0: but you know, people, people thought that, gosh, if I can, without, deploying a lot of capital, you know, skim off some of the margin of matching the load with an empty and not have to deal with labor management, drivers, oh, buying man. and selling trucks, accidents, insurance, and so forth. That That's kind of a great way to go. And I think that that gave rise to all of these brokers that we see today, some of which are, you know, quite small, niche-oriented brokers, and some of which have gotten to be real behemoths, like say tql for example
1: yep so do you see that those consolidating will have some 10 years from now we'll we have more freight brokers or fewer freight brokers
0: well that, that that's a really interesting question And i'm not sure i know the answer to that but i but I, what i can tell you is that the really big guys are putting a lot of money into technology to ensure that they maintain their position and at the same right. time you have small companies tapping into the venture capital market to develop brand new technology, which is easier to deploy because you don't have to deal with 30 or 40 years of technology that you've been working with, you know, over the the past three or four decades. Yep. So, and then there are a bunch of other technology companies that have come along and their mission is to help small to medium-sized brokers close the technology gap. With the big brokers, yep. People like Zoom, people like Parade. I think Truckstop.com is another one that fits into that mold. Yep. And if you fully utilize the services of all these companies that uh, are trying to help you, you can you can you can stay competitive right. with the big brokers right. longer. Whether you be able to be competitive with them forever or not. That that's a debate for the future.
1: Right. It seems from what I from what all the people I talk to, it seems as if the cost per load, the actual cost it takes a freight broker to perform that business is getting smaller and smaller. That doesn't mean they're necessarily going to charge less, but they're going to be able to say my cost is lower on that. And some of the bigger guys that I talked to, again, using technology, maybe using some offshore Headcount for the back office are looking lowering their price. If you're a traditional freight broker who hasn't invested in technology, hasn't gotten that big brother who might have headcount outside the U.S. a little less expensive, your costs are higher than the other guys. That's that's what I th- one of the, I think is a challenge for some of the brokers right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can see this uh, shirt that I'm wearing.
1: Yes, Lean Solutions. But yeah, by the way, that's. This podcast is going to be produced by somebody from Lean Solutions Group. They're a perfect example. And I I always bring this up is in the 80s, we moved a lot of back office stuff to Ireland. And now look at up to Ireland. You don't move back office stuff to Ireland anymore. It's a tech center and a a financial center. And I think we're going to see a lot of these countries that start off as back office, having a lot of expertise. And Lean's a perfect example. Where do you learn best practices? Because you're managing the back office for hundreds of companies that's where you learn best practices.
0: Yeah the, the, the funny thing about lean is uh first of all their people are in Colombia. Right. And you think of Colombia as okay this is a very corrupt country run by a bunch of drug lords and why would anybody ever want to have a relationship with a company in Colombia? But but that's not true anymore. Right. And what you find is is that the workers there are better educated, they're more stable, they, they think of logistics jobs as good jobs. They take it seriously. They stay longer. They don't turn over. And, and many companies have told me that their their best employees right. are the people that, that work for them in Colombia.
1: By the way, I can tell you this from as an automotive guy. I remember moving factories around the world. And I remember moving factories down to Mexico. And somebody said, well, you're just doing that because it's cheaper. I said, it's our highest quality plant. Those jobs down there, if you go and talk to them, they'll tell you these are valued jobs where we were using factories almost as if like, well, I didn't, I don't know what I wanted to do. So I ended up working at this factory, but no criticism if somebody's working is working. But down there, it was like maybe two, three generations ago where somebody here said, I really, really love the fact that I go in there and make good money. So it is not just a low cost solution anymore. It's, it's quality and it's going to be lower cost still but it's it's high quality and getting better every day so and it's
0: in the same time zone
1: yeah exactly by the way i spent a ton of time uh, in the 90s going back and forth to china and thailand and europe we will never understand the cultures in, in much of asia as well as we do colombia and mexico it just makes sense so we started to talk a little bit about this industry so john what do you see this the transportation logistics industry in 10 years
0: well the big that's question a good question joe kind of the, the you know the, the billion dollar question maybe and you know i would tell you that the truckload sector which is the biggest sector yes. and the most fragmented sector will uh continue to consolidate around large companies that offer multiple services like J.B. Hunt, like Schneider, like Warner, like Knight Swift, like CRST, like gonna... CR England, right? They're they're going to become bigger and bigger, okay. And if they play their cards right, as we were talking about earlier, they will be able to gain wallet share from the big accounts, yeah. The WalMarts, the Home Depots, the Lows the gms the fords uh, uh, of the world i don't think there's any question about that the, the the smaller niche truckload carriers have a hard time replicating the cost structure of these big carriers yep because they don't get the same deal on the trucks they don't get the same deal on the tires they pay more for fuel and they need to outsource their sales and marketing to the brokers
1: yep so getting back to that the the biggest trucking company has what one and a half percent of the whole market, and That's that market correct. is and that market is what eight eight hundred billion dollars. That
0: right? If if you don't include the private fleet opportunity, right. And one of the things that the big truckload carriers are doing is trying to convince shippers that have private fleets that oh yeah the carriers would be better off running those private fleets as dedicated fleets,
1: right. Ruan has been on my podcast multiple times, and uh, the guys from Ruan always, I I, I said, used to say Ruan inside, just like Intel, because there's all sorts of trucks running down the road that you see. and You see the Amazon truck, you see certain trucks that have, but a lot of trucks are run by Ruan and other companies like them who are managing that private. So somebody used to say we had our own trucks, we're not in the trucking business, we don't understand it completely, outsource it to one of those one of those big companies that gets it, has the technology, the maintenance, the, the mindset.
0: So, so you have companies like Rouen, Ryder, Penske, Cardinal, where they're dedicated fleet operations, where they, they take over somebody else's private fleet or install a private fleet if one doesn't exist. You know, They can do a heck of a job. The problem is that if you need additional capacity... Uh, at the end of the week or the end of the month or the end of the quarter, there's no place to look, which is why people like J.B. Hunt and Warner and Swift and Schneider and CRST have become so successful uh, in the dedicated space because they have the ability to right. shift capacity from the irregular route network into right. the dedicated contracts when needed.
1: Yep. Yeah, and that all those companies ended up with their own freight brokerages just because so they could just get better serve their customers and make sure they got those backhauls. So when I say the those big the biggest player might have one and a half percent of the market in 10 years, do you see some of the bigger players having 10%, 5%? I mean that, these yeah, are the, the smuggled trucking you know, companies.
0: <laughs> three or three or four percent. And, and and what may drive that, interestingly is the autonomous vehicle phenomenon, okay? Because I think it's very hard for small fleets to really leverage the autonomous vehicle trend. They don't have the density, they don't have the balance sheets, they don't have the sophistication to consider. Vehicles all of a sudden can get two or three times the productivity that that a non-autonomous vehicle can get. And that just drives your costs down dramatically. Which, which is going to give the first adopters a, a big advantage.
1: Right. You just had Don from um, Kodiak on here, and they're running autonomous vehicles between Dallas and Houston. And that, that's, what's that, 800 miles? I mean, they're and they're able to go, I'm not exactly sure.
0: I think it's like 250 <laughs> miles. Oh, okay.
1: Texas is so big, I always overestimate. But if, if you th- went
0: to El Paso, that's more like 800 miles.
1: Yep. So they're they're running those on a regular basis and te- te- Texas is the perfect state for them because there's no yeah. weather.
0: Well so it's uh too simple embark in aurora. I think yeah. you know, ev- everybody is in Texas because Texas has been the most accommodating right. to these autonomous vehicle tests and the weather yeah. to your point is is better and you have some really high density routes eastern yeah. part of the state and then you have long Stretches in the western part of the state, from say Fort Worth to El Paso, there's just you know the only thing you have to worry about is tumbleweeds out there.
1: Well, they got to worry about road construction. There's a lot of road construction, and that means when they see road construction, that that is a uh, that is a a little out of the ordinary for them. But anyway, to your point, we're going to see these big trucking companies get even bigger, and so that's on the truckload side. What about on the less than truckload side? We have what is it? Correct me if I'm wrong. 10 companies that get 80% of the volume and 90 com- or 25 companies get 90% of the volume.
0: That that sounds about right. And, you know, I'd say 10, 15 years ago, people were writing off LTL for debt because it was, you know, the modal sector that served the manufacturing community and manufacturing had all gone offshore. Right. And as e-commerce came back and supply chain speed became critical order sizes became smaller and all of a sudden LTL was back in vogue again, right? The best performing stock in the whole universe over the last 20 or 30 years has been old dominion freight line. Yep. Which, which really has emerged as the preeminent LTL carrier. They have really crushed it and have done a great job with their costing system and and with their pricing discipline and now other companies are trying to replicate what they're doing SIA, you know XPO is in the midst of a restructuring to set its ltl operation aside separately
1: do you think there'll be and, new players uh, in that
0: i, I think it's kind of cool to see the way the industry has come back with a a, a lot of energy and, and enthusiasm and potential
1: do you think there'll be new players in that or will that consolidate further
0: probably won't see any new players. And the reason is that, you know, there's a lot of fixed cost in LTL. You need a network and you need density. And if you don't have a network and density, you can't really do much. So to, to, you know, think, think about a network like Estes, express lines, all the terminals they have, all the people they have, all the forklifts they have in the terminals you know, to, to, to recreate that would require immense <laughs> right. amounts of capital. In today's world so what 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 has been a another interesting trend is is that people have been using asset light providers to access ltl easily so you see people like worldwide express global trans blue grace logistics offering really interesting ltl services uh, to their customers and they they buy you know more or less in in bulk from the LTL carriers, and it gives it gives the LTL carriers a lot more reach into additional customers. Right. It's like an outsourced Salesforce to complement their existing sales force.
1: Yep. And by the way, I'm a big uh, I, I'm a big fan of LTL. I like I like the way it can work when it works works well. I had Oren from Flock Freight on last week. I haven't published that podcast just yet, John, but um, it'll go before this one. And after talking to Oren, Flock Freight is trying to almost eliminate LTL with what they're, I, not the whole industry, but they're definitely taking business away from LTL companies by, I don't know, you want to call it multi-stop, I guess, but they're able to do it with data. They're able to do it with connectivity.
0: Yeah, the, 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 the load to ride industry, you know, we, we took a company public in the old days called Jevic. Yep run by a fellow named Harry Muschlegel, who is really brilliant guy. He sold that company to, uh, yellow. And then started another one called new century around the same yep. uh, idea. And they're in the Northeast, uh, they would run truckload into the Northeast where there's a fair amount of demand and then LTL out of the Northeast yep. on, on a load to ride basis. it's, it's, you know, there are some places where load to ride makes sense. And there are a lot of truckloads moving around where there's extra space on the trailer. Yep. And that's where Flock Freight comes in and and eliminates that inefficiency.
1: Yep. And so that brings us so one of the things I want to talk to you about is is SPAC. uh, And and that's SPAC. And that what does that stand for? For those non financial types like myself,
0: stands for uh, Special Purpose Acquisition Corp.
1: And that means I'm going to take a company public and I use that as a vehicle. Is that what, it, what it
0: means is you are, as a sponsor, which is typically some famous investor or wealthy individual or family office or something, somebody like that, will say, I have an idea. I, I want to buy a company that exists today. I and mean, the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to raise money in a SPAC uh, IPO, let's say $100 million. I will get like 20% of the ownership of that company just for being the deal organizer yep. and for paying for the legal fees and the banking fees, which, which is a little bit egregious, frankly. <laughs> and then I'm going to try and convince somebody that they should merge with me uh, as a mechanism to become public.
1: Now, is that an easier way to go public?
0: It's an easier way to go public for the company that the SPAC merges with. Right. Going public on your own um, is a is a pretty arduous uh, process, pretty expensive process. So uh, what what's happened is because there's that twenty percent dilution, the sponsor yep. component of the ownership that needs to be digested. Most of the SPACs in transportation that have merged with transportation companies have merged with early stage uh, autonomous vehicle companies, electric battery companies, electric vehicle companies, companies that don't have real earnings right now. They're still losing money. And as an old reconverted analyst, you know, and and now an investor, you know, how do you value a company (laughs) that's losing money today and may or may not make money five years from now?
1: I've, I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett and I've read all his books. And I, if there's one consistent thing I remember is when they said to Warren Buffett, I remember them talking to him about Amazon. He says, will you invest in Amazon? He's an investor now. But years ago when they said, will you invest in Amazon? He goes, it seems like a good thing they got going, but they aren't making any money. How would I value it? I have no way, no way to put a dollar amount on it. Because he now wasn't the, into Cash that.
0: flows are all negative. Right. You know, They, you know, they talk in terms of, Cash burn rate. So I've got I've got a hundred million of cash, and I'm burning twenty million a year. So therefore, I can go for five years.
1: Right. So, are you a fan of these? Uh, do you call them SPACs? Is that the right way to say it?
0: Yeah, I I, I, th- I think it's an interesting vehicle in some cases. I think they've been overused and a bit abused. And the reality is that very few of them have proven to make money for the investors. Oh, and, and that's kind is, of the is acid test. <laughs> so if the investors are losing money, uh, eventually investors will stop investing in the SPACs. Yep. I, th- I think I think it was too much of a good thing.
1: Yep. So what are some of your favorite companies in, in this in this space?
0: Well, certainly uh, JB Hunt Transport Services is near and dear to my heart. They offer a really interesting wide range of services. And have always seemed to be kind of one step ahead of other truckload based carriers yeah you know, they were really early into dedicated they were really early into intermodal they were really early early into logistics now they have a digital freight matching platform and jb hunt 360 just made some really brilliant uh, strategic moves and they've and been in up arkansas up. i really admire what they've done
1: and they've been in arkansas even before it became northwest arkansas
0: <laughs> yeah, that I mean I can remember going to visit Mr. Hunt back when uh, the headquarters was a butler building and he had a little putting green in the in the waiting room and he figured nobody should ever waste any time. So if you're waiting for a meeting with him, at least you could practice your putting.
1: Right. Yep. And I just had the fellas from Freight Waves on, I think one of their next events is down in Northwest Arkansas, because you have JB Hunt down there, you have uh, Walmart down there, I think Tyson, I'm probably missing dozens of other companies that we would all recognize, but uh, that speaks to the importance of the region. And part of the reason that region is so important is JB Hunt and clearly Walmart. So what are some other companies you like?
0: Well, certainly I have a great degree of admiration for Old Dominion Freight Line. I think they've, they've really been very disciplined about how they've grown the company. I think David Congdon did a great job of strategic planning, and their exception-based reporting system really enabled them to scale without ever running the risk of blowing the company up. Just, just really a brilliant company that's created a lot of value for a lot of people, including a lot of shippers. I also think very highly of Landstar System and you know the fact that they have built a model that enables agents to grow bigger and more successful and when you go to their agent i've had the pleasure of speaking at about eight of their agent conventions over the years and uh, the management team literally gets up there and says you know the only reason we exist is to make your jobs easier and to allow you to grow your business so if you ever have any issues let us know and we'll change our modus operandi we'll change our direction we exist to satisfy you guys and it's just it's been a really consistent message over a long period of time and and they have really knocked the cover off the ball
1: yep John, I know I'm going to lose you here in a few minutes. So if, um, if, if you don't, if, uh, don't mind, tell us a few more companies you like. And then, um, and then I want to hear about what you're up to these days, besides recovering from uh, getting cut open.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, there are, there are some uh, newer companies around that have been uh, financed by venture capital or that yep. have merged with SPACs. One of the companies I think very highly of is Aurora which is one of the autonomous vehicle companies. I'm on its advisory council, along with a, a, you know, a few other fellows that I have great respect for. And we're trying to help you know the technologists develop a product that's marketable. I think their long range LIDAR is really unique and, and maybe differentiates them from some of the other autonomous vehicle companies. Uh, so that's one I like a lot.
1: And when you say LIDAR, that's, that's like radar, but it's helped, that's, that's their vision system so they can see the road, memorize the road, and landmarks so they can drive that vehicle.
0: Right. They've got cameras, radar, short-range LIDAR, and long-range LIDAR on the trucks. And the combination of those four systems is what enables you to, to run down the road safely. And the objective is to be as safe or safer than you would be with a human driver. That's
1: the challenge I think that we're going to have with the autonomous. We right now today, unfortunately, we have truck accidents and there are truck drivers that are to blame. And we do accept that. With the autonomous, any accident is going to be front page news. And we I think those all those makers recognize that. And even if they say we're 20% safer than a, a human it's still gonna be a little bit of a learning curve for the public and for companies to say, it's 20% safer, but it still has accidents.
0: Yeah, there's no question about that. I saw a webinar last week where one of the technologists from Gattic, Gattic is a little bit of a different flavor of autonomous vehicle companies that I happen to have an investment in, and, and it runs over the same route every day. Yeah. So the truck learns the route and then just completely repeats that route over and over right. and over again until you change the route and has to right. relearn the new route. But defining the safety parameters is a real issue for the industry. Right. You know, how safe is the average truck operated right. by a human being?
1: Right. And that you mentioned, you mentioned, standard. right. And you mentioned it learns Not only does that truck learn, all their trucks learned, right? So they're all, they're the, they're the Borg, right? They all, they all learn.
0: Trucks get safer and safer and safer in theory. Right. Over time. But when you introduce them at scale, you want to be at least as safe or safer than the average human driver. But defining that is a real challenge. I
1: just talked to the guys from parallel systems and they're doing autonomous rail. And I was like, that makes sense that that's easy i mean cuz there's less opportunity for accidents because you are on rail but we're we're going it, to it's an interesting topic john because so often when i talk to people even in this industry they're like autonomous that's a great great grade it'll be there but not in my lifetime. And I was like, it's here. It's here. It's getting very, very close. And we're gonna to have to get comfortable with that. And to your point, the standard isn't zero accidents, it has to be some number better than some percentage better than a human. And 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 by the way, there's humans that never have an accident in 35 years of driving. <laughs> That's a pretty high bar, but uh <laughs> We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. So, what are some, some other companies? Of them have had show? a lot
0: of accidents in thirty-five years. <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. So, what are some other uh, companies you like?
0: Well, you know, I think about um, one company that I'm an advisor to, Old Hall, which is looking to digitize the driver staffing business. Yeah, those guys and are going to. They're
1: they're going to come on my podcast. I forgot the guy's name, but I just had some emails with him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Tim is. Uh, the founder he's a very smart guy you might want to have him on your podcast but uh you know they they could morph that thing into a driver management platform that can also be used by big fleets that have lots of drivers who may want to supplement those drivers with driver staffing drivers who hop around from carrier to carrier but but they're doing some really great work with some really good companies that that could really take the industry by storm you know i i like i mean i like freight waves i think freight waves uh yes it's a cool company i was the first, first advisor to freight waves uh, they have some interesting data products kind of like the bloomberg of freight um i think they've done a job of uh, getting news out there getting data out there for the broader use of the the, the industry and Albany's need to figure out how to do a better job of integrating a lot of that data that comes out of FreightWaves.
1: Exactly. And, and I, you, you uh, mentioned, uh, you, you know, call, I, I was going to say, you called them the Bloomberg of Freight. Bloomberg also calls FreightWaves the Bloomberg of Freight.
0: <laughs> there you go. So who knows uh, where FreightWaves ends up? But, you know, Craig Fuller is a pretty much of a visionary character. Grew up in the industry, knows a lot about it, and is, is really, really bright and very creative. Right. So it's been fun to be involved there. You know, there's there's a, another company that I help advise from time to time called Baton.
1: Yeah, they've been on the podcast. Great company. Which
0: is trying to take some of the concepts involved in, in drayage and apply them to long-haul trucking. Yep. Which, which makes a whole bunch of sense. The, the way to ensure that you irritate a long haul driver is to ask him to sit in LA traffic for three hours. Right. Once it gets to LA and, and Baton can take care of eliminating all of that. I like, I like Cargomatic. I think Cargomatic yep. is the most interesting of the digital freight matching companies because they are targeting the shorter haul markets you know, the the east side of LA to the north side of LA. Yep. Kind of markets where turning the trucks multiple times a day efficiently is a process that can really be enhanced through technology. So I, I like what Rich Gerstein and his team are doing there. There's there's just a, a real laundry list of great companies out there that many of which have been founded in the last five, six, seven years. Yeah. And some of them are going to be wildly successful. Some may go out of business. But, but it's it's probably the most exciting time to be in transportation logistics that I can remember
1: yep and John uh, you, you mentioned freight waves one good way to, to get to know a lot of these companies that you just mentioned is to get to freight waves events and also to get to manifest has just had their first event there's all these events and all of these players are at these events um I just spoke to the people about uh, manifest uh, about their conference which their first one in January but freight waves is always having great events but on top of that, I just had Tim Dooner on my podcast. They have 20 podcasts over there. Obviously, you, you should listen to mine first. Then you should listen to those 20 <laughs> podcasts. But but um, there's a lot of these guys are get, getting their message out. And I think if there's one thing I've noticed about this industry and why I stayed when I came, I came here reluctantly if, uh, 12 years ago, thinking I'd be here for 18 months. This industry is so dynamic now with the consolidation and the VC money and the technology. Dynamic though the what you know now and what you're doing now is not going to be here in a few years. And John, I'm sure you can say the same thing. You mentioned uh, having a long career. I joke to my kids, don't worry about the job you have now. When you're my age, all those guys will be dead, and those companies won't exist. And you can say anything you want on your resume at that point, <laughs> and that's just the reality. You know, the, the, we're really making a lot of changes in the industry. Anyway, John, so. Before before we uh, before we go, I want to get some final thoughts on you, and then I want to hear from you about what's going on in our industry. I think we could talk for three hours. I would love to hear all your thoughts on a lot of different things, but I want to get your final thoughts, and then I want to hear what you're up to these days.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the last couple of years have been challenging for everybody due to COVID, due to the fact that most people have had to work from home, had to get used to doing uh, webinars and podcasts and Zoom meetings and conference calls, less people-to-people interaction. But our industry has really grappled with that challenge successfully and emerged out the other end stronger and better and more capable of serving shipper needs. It's been really impressive to watch. Uh, Many companies have done extremely well during this period now we're in a period where we have this war over in the ukraine which is uh somewhat concerning we have inflation i think last month's inflation was something like 10 percent right that number was just reported this morning i don't ever remember inflation being quite that high maybe it was back and i'm trying to think maybe back in the uh, late 70s when gerald ford passed around those buttons uh, that, that suggested we should whip inflation now. If you can remember that? yeah, <laughs> The wind buttons. But you know that's a challenging environment right now. There's a, a lot more freight than there is capacity. Is that going to continue in this inflationary environment? You know, we've got COVID reappearing in China. There are ports in China that are being shut down here. How disruptive to supply chains will that be? You know, there's there's all sorts of curveballs that are being thrown in our direction, and it would be nice just to have a period of uh, kind of stability without all these external events having a negative impact on the industry. But but all things considered, it does look like the industry is doing extremely well. It looks like people are buying more things than they are services, even as COVID wanes, which creates huge uh, freight demand. We've got great uh, technology coming into the industry, you know, thanks in part to the venture capital community. That's attracting a lot of young talent into the industry, which we'd never really had before, tech savvy talent. So I, I'm very excited uh, about the future and can't think of an industry that's more exciting than, than ours.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, I came from automotive, which is a mature industry. And that comes with certain things. And a lot of what that comes with is you're in a giant hierarchy, whether you're a supplier or whatever, and it's follow the process. Follow the process. We, this is the way we do things. It's always more efficient, more effective, more efficient. Not, not complaining. But then when you come out here, it a, feels a little bit like the wild, wild west. But I think that's just where the opportunity is at. I say this all the time to young people I talk to. 10, 15 years ago, you wouldn't be in this industry. No way around it. You would have been sucked into another industry. So we are getting the top talent into this space. And that's fantastic. And again, that, that that speaks to how much better we're going to do in the future. So, John, what are you up to these days?
0: Well, we have an interesting lifestyle where we spend part of the year here in Dallas, part of the year in the Adirondack Mountains near Saranac Lake, and part of the year uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands. We also nice. have a place in Baltimore still so that we can uh, see the Ravens play. Hopefully, they will have f- fewer injuries next year. But Baltimore has uh, a laundry list of problems, uh, which is the reason why we moved from there down to Texas back in uh, 2014.
1: My kid just moved from Baltimore to Florida. <laughs> it does have its issues. It's a nice place. I, I love I loved Baltimore other than I caught COVID there.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. That's not fun. No. But, but it does have, you know, some really nice attributes. The Inner Harbor is nice. I love being uh, on that water. It's nice. Yeah, uh, Johns Hopkins University is, is great. There's some neighborhoods that have some cool restaurants and so forth. But you really have to watch yourself at night. It's a very dangerous place.
1: I said to my daughter, I said, I keep hearing there's problems in Baltimore. I go, all I saw was cool places. She goes, well, I'm not taking anywhere that's nasty. But I really enjoyed my time there. What a cool city. So are you still doing some work?
0: Well, yeah, I'm not really working for anybody per se. I'm uh, advising Clarendon Capital, which is a transportation and logistics only private equity firm and serve on a two of Clarendon's four platform company boards, which is uh, great fun. I, I love the guys there. It's a great team of people that have liked us or like me at least been in transportation logistics their whole careers. You know, I would I would tell you that I'm on a, a bunch of other boards also just to name a few. CRST International, which is a great I know company those guys. That you know is probably going to do about 1.8 billion in revenue this year. It's gotten to be a very large. John Smith really has done a nice job there, building that company after he bought bought out his siblings maybe I want to say 20 years ago or so, it's grown tremendously. Advising a number of smaller companies, such as Hall, we talked about, Baton, we talked about advising a subsidiary of uh, AT Kearney called HubTech, which is a basically a truckload optimization tool. Advising a little startup logistics company called uh, Novapath and Tetria Logistics Services. You know, that is that is great fun for me and just basically spend time monitoring my venture capital and private equity investment portfolio in the transportation logistics space and serving as an advisor and on these boards to these various companies. It's, it's, uh, it's great fun. And, you know, as I once told someone, and maybe this is too harsh to say on a podcast, but I say it anyway, <laughs> life is too short to work with assholes.
1: No, I do say that too.
0: So I basically work only with people that I like now. Yeah, that that's the same with...
1: Fun. So it's funny as um, I heard Warren Buffett, somebody asked him a question one time. They said, so you say that you're this rational investor, yet all the people you seem to work with are your friends. How do you keep ending up? And he said, well, I have smart friends, but that was part of it. But he said, I, "And look, if I, you, you make a lot of money, part of the benefit is you don't have to work with people you don't like. <laughs> so Anyway... Let's wrap this bad boy up. John, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. And uh, you mentioned that you're an advisor to all these companies as you're saying this. I kept thinking, and I'm not just saying this to be nice, all these success stories you talked about in the beginning. I mean, I imagine when you came into this industry many years ago, this was a there's the wild, wild west and it's getting more and more mature. You've watched during your career, the maturing of this industry. It was a hodgepodge of companies not very many publicly traded. And now you look at all these companies going publicly traded, acquiring, getting VC money, investing in tech. You've, you've been there, done that, got the hat. And I think it's fantastic that you're uh, advising their companies. They're, some of these small companies, they're lucky.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's great fun to see these really bright guys come into the industry. And, and most of them are smart enough to realize what they don't know. And yeah. if, if they need help understanding the transportation industry, they'll bring advisors on that actually understand it. They'll take care of the tech component, but but it's really important that you not be too tech heavy in a tech company right. or you'll end up developing a piece of technology that solves a problem that doesn't exist.
1: Yes, exactly. John, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate this. Uh, it's fantastic what you've taken us through. And, uh, It is an exciting time to be in this space, and I really appreciate you coming on my podcast.
0: Well, thanks, Joe. It was a pleasure to to be here, and uh, we'll do this again sometime.
1: I hope so. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward.